Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from Touristiar in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Euro Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Anthony Dockrell. Now, there are a lot of assumptions we make about living in Australia. One of those assumptions is that we live in a free and open society. And in many ways, that is true. But scratch beneath the surface and you may be surprised at what you find. What if I told you that Australia's secrecy laws had 875 offences on the books? 875. And what if I told you these laws were shaping the news you read, or in many cases, don't get to read? A review of secrecy laws has just been published and it recommends a number of changes, including bringing the number of offences down to 707. Still a huge number. But do these changes go far enough? And is there a better way to think about balancing state secrets and the public's right to know? I'm pleased to say our guest this week is Professor Peter Grister, who is a professor in journalism from Macquarie University. Peter Grister, welcome to Four for State. Thank you very much. Now, look, a few years back, we had uh, New York Times journalist uh, Damien Cave on Four for State, and he made the point at the time that Australia is probably the most secretive democracy in the world. Is he right? I think so. Um, the New York Times made its assessment based on a pretty deep dive into Australian secrecy laws. It started with the fact that we've got no constitutional protection for freedom of speech, for privacy and so on. And so in the absence of any any of those kinds of protections in our constitution, the parliament has been relatively free to pass all sorts of laws that, that undermine media freedom, undermine freedom of speech, undermine our right to privacy. And we've seen, in combination with that, a huge tranche of national security legislation passed since 9-11, more than any other country on earth. At the moment, at last count, we're about 92 separate pieces of legislation, and the number's rising quite rapidly. Um, and so we've, we've both the, one of the least protected in terms of our human rights, but also one of the most heavily legislated in terms of national security. Um, and in broad terms, that that's created precisely the kind of community that, that Damien's been concerned about. I mean, there are a whole bunch of specific laws and we can dive into those, but in, in broad terms, um, I, I think he's absolutely right. Most people listening would not understand the legal minefield that journalists have to go through to report on particular em- elements of the government. Um, can you explain just how difficult it is for journalists to operate? Sure. So there's there's a whole host of look. Let's start with the basic principle that journalists are supposed to be have access to confidential sources. They're supposed to be able to protect their sources um, from from exposure. That principle is so deeply embedded in our in our system that we've even got shield laws that allow journalists to refuse to reveal their sources in court. Now there are always caveats to that system, but that's the basic principle that we've accepted because we understand that we need or journalists need that capacity if they're going to be able to hold government to account. And remember, that is the most basic role that um, public interest journalism is supposed to play in our democracy. But the trouble is that the law erodes at all sorts of levels that that most fundamental principle. We start with data retention laws, um, which give the government the capacity to investigate any any Australian's metadata for up to two for at least two years um, without a warrant. Now, 
And there's been um, a whole host of journalists at the time that this law was passed back in 2015. Um, journalists complained and said, listen, you can't do that because that exposes our sources. So the government agreed to um, a concession, agreed to special journalist investigation warrants. Um, but those warrant hearings that take place in secret, um, but it also doesn't, it means that it doesn't um, compel the, the investigating agency to get a warrant if they want to investigate the journalist's sources. They don't need to worry about the journalist's metadata. They can go straight to a journalist's source. Now, the metadata, just to be clear to your listeners, um, isn't the actual content of communications, but it, it, it's who you communicate with, where you were at the time, the time that you communicated, where they were at the time, um, all of that sort of information. And although it doesn't sound like much, um, when you collate and combine all of that information, um, it makes it very, very easy to identify a person's behavior and the, the communications that they have, who they're talking to, what they're talking about, all of those sorts of things. Um, so it's almost impossible for a journalist to protect their sources. And we know that the government has both legally and illegally investigated journalist metadata as well as their sources on, on dozens and dozens of, of occasions over the years. That simple law alone makes it almost impossible for journalists to guarantee that their sources are protected. So journalists have increasingly been using encrypted communications, but there's another piece of law, the Telecommunications Act, which compels, which gives the government the power to compel telecommunications companies to give um, the investigating agencies the right the, the capacity to investigate to go in through the back door of, of communications um there are all sorts of other laws um the crimes act um which is one of the oldest laws in our books which as we've seen most recently uh, makes it a crime to give information to a journalist because the commonwealth now considers that information to be stolen property this is the case of this is the way that uh, David McBride was was convicted recently, forced to con um, to plead guilty when he gave for information that he gave to the ABC, uh, revealing details or allegations of of war crimes by Australian special forces in Afghanistan. Um, the Espionage Act is another law that makes it almost impossible to to uh, talk to to um, Commonwealth uh, civil servants, public servants, without without authorization. Um, and so there's a whole host of laws. That's only a tiny sample. It's a whole host of laws which make it illegal for journalists to do their jobs, which criminalize um, uh, invest journalistic investigations that, that risk uh, their sources and whistleblowers to criminal prosecution, but also exposes journalist data to um, overbearing investigation. And I, I, I think when you put all of those things together, it becomes very evident that it's it's both dangerous and difficult for journalists to do to perform the job that they're supposed to do in a democracy. And look, one other aspect of that too, it, it is difficult and dangerous to do this job. But the other chilling effect I can see that happens with the, with these kinds of laws is that smaller media organisations like the one I work for simply cannot undertake such investigations because it's yeah. too difficult, too expensive. So it, it, you're really leaving about three major voices to cover what's going on with the government. So that, that again, is a really serious issue here, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you raised that because I, I think a lot of people say, well, look, we, we don't see 
police barging into, well, at least not since 2019, and I'm pretty sure we're going to talk about that, but we're not seeing police barging into newsrooms and hauling journalists off in manacles or, you know, getting thumbscrews and being tortured. We're not seeing journalist sources being banged up, but actually we are. <laughs> um, but that's also because the law is working in the way that it's supposed to, and that's as a deterrent. As you said, um, small newsrooms like yourselves um, finding almost impossible to navigate the legal minefield. And if you can't really understand the complexities of the law, you tend to be um, risk-averse and, and, and just not do the work. Or you rec if you recognise the problem, then you're likely to close the investigations down because you can't afford the costs of, of going to court. Um, in the old days, a lot of newsrooms would say, look, screw it, we'll, 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 we'll run the risk anyway, we'll write the cost of, of legal action off because we reckon because we feel it's it's the story is too important and we want to fight this out in court um but because of the commercial and financial pressures on newsrooms everywhere um they just can't afford to do it now and so it's impossible while it's impossible to quantify the stories not told we know from a lot of academic research and anecdotal evidence you know your own evidence included that that stories are being shut down, that it is having a very serious chilling effect on on, on journalism. And um, whether whether Australians are aware of it or not, um, we're all poorer for it. How did we get here? Was it simply 9-11 or is it, is it something deeper, uh, the fact that we don't have basic protections in our constitution? There's, there, there is that deep problem that I mentioned earlier. Um, a lot of people aren't aware, but we don't have a Bill of Rights in our Constitution. We've got no constitutional protections, as I mentioned earlier, for freedom of speech, privacy, freedom of religion, freedom of association. And given the experience of trying to get first Australians recognised in our Constitution, I think we realise that constitutional amendment to fix that problem is, is almost impossible. Um, so we have to set that aside and think of other ways to tackle the issue. But I think also... 9-11 and Australia to be clear has always had a kind of slightly paranoid security state that's operated um, we've always felt vulnerable in our country in our region um, whether as a colonial power or as a you know, post-world war ii power very nervous of our of our Asian neighbors and so we've always given a lot of power and authority to our intelligence and security agencies but 9-11 I think weaponized that to to an extraordinary extent and there are a couple of reasons for that. First of all, 9-11 created the narratives around security, around national security and safety. Um, and it gave governments everywhere a license to use that as a way of, as a lever for passing all sorts of so-called emergency laws in the name of the war on terror um, that are still on our books and frankly will never disappear. We'll never see the end of the, the war on terror. No one's ever going to sign an, an armistice or you know, a peace treaty or whatever with, with terrorism. It's always, and so we'll always have that in our in our legal system, our legal code. But Australia was particularly vigorous because I think Labour, because of our political dynamics, Labour has always felt vulnerable um, on, on national security. It has never really wanted to be wedged on national security. And so it's never really pushed back in the way that opposition movements in, say, Europe um, have pushed back to, to, to hold the line on, on civil rights and civil liberties. Um, and so we've seen a lot more laws than, than 
most than almost any well not literally almost but literally in any other country on earth it was so vigorous that one canadian researcher a guy called kent roach um described it as hyper legislation um and that was that was that was over 10 years ago when we'd only passed 50 new national security laws Look, before we get to the review, we, we should talk about some of the events that have happened on the way to that review being tabled. Um, for those who don't remember, back in 2019, Anika Smurfhurst was uh, a News Corp journalist, and at the time, her home was raided by the federal police looking for evidence of her, her sources for a story that she'd done about six months before then. At the same time, the ABC was also raided, um, and a large raid on the Ultimo offices, which was partly caught on camera. Um, Peter, how pivotal were these raids to where we are today? They, I think, don't think it's so much that they were pivotal, but what they did was that they exposed some of the weaknesses that had previously been hidden in, in, in our system. They showed just how vulnerable both journalists and their data and their sources really were, um, how legally exposed and, and, and forced a conversation around press freedom and national security that we really hadn't had before. Um, they triggered two parliamentary inquiries, one by the most powerful parliamentary committee, the, parli- the, the, the um, PJCAS, the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security, and another one by the Senate. And both of those committees passed uh, or made a, a series of widespread recommendations. Now, for a bunch of reasons, we, we can go into some of the recommendations if, if you'd like, but... Broadly speaking, I don't feel that the recommendations went far enough. To be clear, almost none of the recommendations have been have been acted upon, even almost five years later. Um, but what they did, what those reports did fundamentally, was acknowledge the the extent and the depth of of the problem. And I think in on that basis alone, the the, the AFP raids were actually very very useful. Did you see those raids at the time as a form of blunt intimidation? Yes, I did. Um, I thought that they, because they happened on consecutive days, they, and and the, the AFP have insisted that it was only, it was purely coincidence. Um, I find that hard to believe. And, and we've since learned that they were planning a third raid, but given the public outrage that uh, followed those first two, they, they decided wisely not to carry out the third raid. Um, and they've also back down on on almost all of the prosecutions they they withdrew the prosecutions for the journalists um they withdrew the investigation into this into annika smether's source the only prosecution we saw can, going ahead was that of david mcbride who was the source for the abc's story the afghan file story and um earlier this week um david was really forced to plead guilty to passing stolen commonwealth property to the abc so i, I think the the raids themselves, um, as I said, forced a conversation. Um, it, we're still really in the process of of trying to push through the kinds of reforms that we really badly need to to stop them happening again. What did those raids mean to you personally? Because you, you've been persecuted for being a journalist. Did they trigger yeah. anything in you at the time? Yeah, they did. Well, look, um, your listeners may or may not know, I, I was arrested in, in Egypt in 2013, the end of 2013, on, on terrorism charges. Um, and I was convicted, um, sentenced to seven years. Now, I, I didn't, thankfully, didn't have to spend seven years in, in Egypt. I um, only spent 400 days. But watching 
the federal police um, pushed their way into Annika's home and into the offices of the ABC and and you know basically searched the room and and um, and, and charged them. That was was really pretty intimidating and it, it really triggered something quite profound in me. Um, more a sense of of deja vu, um, a sense of frustration and and, and outrage at, at what I saw happening, but also real concern. Uh, real concern that, and a, and a recognition too that we were heading the same direction as Egypt. I'm not suggesting. Let me be very clear about this. I'm not suggesting Australia is about to become Egypt, but I also realised that the same forces that had pushed Egypt to pass loosely framed national security legislation, anti-terrorism legislation, in the name of national security, that they then used to come after uncomfortable journalism. Um, in my case, was the same political forces that had pushed Australia to passing or allowed Australia to pass loosely framed national security legislation that was then used to come after uncomfortable journalism. And, and I realised that that um, we, we, we really did need to act or, or risk seeing ourselves slipping really towards authoritarianism. It definitely wasn't the best day for what was meant to be a functioning democracy. Um, the other thing, too, that you know, strikes me about those, those two raids was that both stories were clearly in the public interest. Did, did you? Yeah. Did, we were still in the same place where we have to justify over and over again the, the actual act of public journalism. Uh, we'll get to the review, but before we jump to the review, uh, why is public interest journalism still something that needs to be uh, justified in the year 2023? That's a really good question. Um, I think for a start, and, and, and I think journalism itself has to take some of the responsibility here. Um, there is a lot of public cynicism towards journalists and journalism and the products that we produce. Um, and that's partly because we as journalists, I think, as, a, as an industry as a whole, I'm not suggesting you in particular or I, but as an industry, we've, we've broadly let our standards slip. Now, I don't think journalists themselves are necessarily to blame for that. I don't think any of us particularly like this, but the, the collapse of the business model, the digital revolution has made it almost impossible to survive and it's forced journalism to become much more of a commercial product than, than, any, than it ever used to be. Um, and in that process, I think we've we've allowed the standards to slip and and you know and seen a lot of public cynicism about the work that we do. I think part of the problem too is it's very difficult to distinguish what we see online, um, the good stuff, the real stuff, the stuff that's produced to a high ethical and professional standards, and and a lot of the stuff that looks like good journalism but simply doesn't make the grade. And I think that. That's a very serious problem. That the lack because online everything looks the same, all information looks the same, um, and I, I I think we we need to try and, and tackle that issue. But the point is that unless we have public confidence in the product we produce, we're going to continually have to justify the work that we do. Um, I also think politically um, it's easy to kick journalists and journalism. Um, at, when, when, when they can exploit that kind of that kind of cynicism. And so we find ourselves having to continually justify and fight for that corner. Okay, well, let's turn to the review. What, what have been some of the major recommendations that have come out of the review? And do you think that the review has gone far enough? So let's start with the, the, the good news. I mean, I think for a start, the, 
the review points to 875 secrecy offences in our books. Now, just think about that number, 875 secrecy offences. It covers everything from national security to tax laws and so on, um, and and a system that's really dysfunctional when it comes to protecting whistleblowers. And so one of the recommendations is to reduce that number, to rationalise it, to um, to settle it down, um, to make it a little bit more coherent. Well, they've decided to to um, get rid of at least 160 of those. So we've still so we're dealing with a more manageable but still excessive 707 um, secrecy offences. There's also been a, a set of of principles that the government is that uh, the review recommended to try and harmonize a lot of the secrecy offenses to try and bring them under a sort of set of common commonly understood principles and and and, and goals um, the government is also trying to introduce a general secrecy offense that will again create a kind of blanket system or blanket mechanism that deals with with secrecy and secrecy offenses um, and those are really important and necessary steps. The government has also made some, because if we think of of breaches of secrecy um, as equivalent for journalists, breaches of secrecy mean sources giving them information. And if we think, if we recognise that that's important, we also need to recognise that there will be some circumstances under which it's right and proper for people to breach for Commonwealth civil servants and for for um, for people who are working for the Commonwealth to act as whistleblowers and, and breach their, their secrecy offences because there is a higher public interest in doing that. Um, and when it comes to journalists, the government has made some, some reasonably encouraging noises about the need to protect public interest journalism for the very reasons we've just been discussing. So that's all that's all very, very that's all very welcome. But when you think about the way it works, you, re- you realise that the reason we, we had 875 secrecy offences in the first place was because of the way that the government was setting up a whole set of patches to cover to cover up um, holes in the system. And you, you end up with a really messy patchwork quilt, if you like, of, of laws that... that that really end up being more disruptive than they are helpful. And so we need to have a much more comprehensive overhaul of the system that establishes a set of of laws that really embed the principle of secrecy, but also the the right when it's right and appropriate to breach those secrecy offences. And at the moment that the the, um, recommendations really don't do that in any any coherent way. And it does sound that way. I mean, 875 offences cut down to 707. I mean, it, it's kind of like pruning uh, an out-of-control bush, but the bush is still uh, overgrown all over the place. Look, the report recommends that the Director of Public Prosecutions has to seek approval from the, the Attorney General before prosecuting a journalist. This isn't new. That initiative was brought in by former Attorney General Christian Porter, and he brought it in really as a pressure release valve at the time. And 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 in some respects, it always felt like a temporary measure, but it now looks like it's here to stay. Were you surprised that this initiative will go on? And what are some of the risks? Yeah, I, I was surprised by it. I don't think it's appropriate. I can understand why, um, because 
it, it recognised, I guess, that when if a journalist is prosecuted, it, it becomes a political issue, and and so they felt that the a politician, the attorney general, ought to have um, a backstop or provide a backstop in, in in deciding whether or not to prosecute a journalist, and and so you know he sort of decreed that it the buck really should stop with the attorney general rather than with the director of public prosecutions, um, and. At one level, I, I I can see why you'd do that, but there are a couple of really serious problems with that. The first one is that it makes the decision to prosecute a journalist political, whichever way it goes, or to, prose- to, to prosecute or not to prosecute. And if, if a politician is involved in that choice, then it's going to be seen through that political lens, and I do not think that is a healthy way to go. Um, it also... You know, we forget that um, the, the 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 attorney general himself um, can be vulnerable to journalistic investigation, and in fact, Christian Porter was the subject of a couple of quite damaging journalistic investigations, including um, allegations that he was involved in in sexual abuse himself in a rape case. Um, he's always denied those allegations, of course, but but. It made him the subject of a very aggressive journalistic investigation. Now, if Porter had decided that the journalist who made those inquiries had to be investigated for breaches of secrecy, um, then that would have made it very, very difficult. Whatever you think of Mark Dreyfus um, or any other attorney general, the fact is that they are just as vulnerable to to, to journalistic investigation, to damaging news stories, to, to potentially embarrassing stories um, as anyone else. And so I think giving them the power to make that decision is is frankly dangerous. Um, as I said, regardless of which way they, they decide to go, you know, if a journalist is being investigated, if they decide not to invest, to, to prosecute, that will also be seen as a political choice as much as a decision to prosecute. And, I, and so I don't think it's a good move. In your article in the conversation, you, uh, you have suggested a different approach to the one recommended by the report. What would you like to see? Um, I'd like to see a Media Freedom Act. This is something that we've been talk- thinking about and talking about for some time now. And by we, I mean the, my, my group, the Alliance for Journalist Freedom. As I mentioned earlier, there is no protection for press freedom or freedom of speech anywhere in our constitution. And as we also discussed, we can't, we don't think a constitutional amendment to fix that is a realistic prospect. But there is an alternative, and that is uh, an act which works in ways very similar to the Human Rights Acts that work uh, in Queensland, the ACT in Victoria. And those acts do three very simple things. They say, first of all, that Parliament must always consider media freedom when passing, or when, must always consider human rights when passing new legislation. They say that um, the courts must interpret existing legislation in ways that are consistent with human rights and that privilege human rights, um, even if there is no human rights specific human rights um, provision in those laws and that civil servants must always act in ways that support human rights. Now, if you replace the words human rights with media freedom, then I think you are close to something that we, uh, close to a solution that we need. What we are effectively saying is that parliament has to always consider human rights, media freedom in new legislation, that even if in the courts, even if there is no specific media freedom defence or journalist defence, the courts are still obliged to interpret um, the law that involves human uh, involves media freedom by assuming that there is 
a compelling public interest in media freedom and in whatever journalists might be publishing. We are not saying that journalists should have the right to publish whatever they want at any time, just that the courts have a positive obligation to consider it um, and argue in, fa and, and in favour of it unless there is an overriding public interest um, that, that trumps the public interest in, 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 in press freedom. That would create a kind of blanket presumption in favour of media freedom and in, in favour of, of publishing. And I think that would solve a lot of the problems that the, the government is trying to currently fix with, with the patches that are in, in this latest review. Look, finally, uh, 2023 has not been a good year for journalists working in war zones. Uh, since October 7, Reporters Without Borders are reporting that 41 journalists have been killed. 36 of the journalists killed are Palestinian. Is this number a reflection of the nature of war or do you fear something else is going on? Journalists have always been vulnerable when they're working in hostile environments. I mean, the journalist's job is to run towards the gunfire when everybody else is running away. Um, and so it, 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 it's inherently dangerous. Um, and so it's no surprise to me that the, the, the scale of the casualties is, is horrifically high. It's, it's the highest that we've seen since the, the Committee for the Protection of Journalists have been taking records in 1991. Um, but there is a lot of evidence to suggest that that the Israeli authorities are targeting journalists, um, that they are firing on on people who are acting as journalists who are gathering news in and around the front lines. Um, I, I, Israel, of course, has denied the allegations, and, and we still need to see more investigations. It's very difficult to carry out comprehensive investigations under the current environment. But if that is the case, as some news organizations have alleged, um, then I think that would be a very, very serious, serious problem um, and certainly constitute a war crime. Um, I'm deeply concerned about this because without journalists, without good independent journalists who are standing on their credibility and their authority covering a place like the conflict between Palestinians or between Hamas and the Israelis, all we are left with is are either the crazy, unfiltered um, social media posts or the propaganda from either Hamas or Israel. And I don't think anybody thinks that, the, that those sources of information are reliable enough to make a, a a decent assessment and have a solid understanding of what's taking place there right now. We badly need good independent journalism from the region to help us understand what's going on. And as this week's Media Watch showed, uh, the level of disinformation that's flowing from both sides is totally out of control. Journalists on the ground is, you know, and it's an important way to remove the fog of war to some degree. On this particular issue, should the Australian government speak up about the, the safety of journalists? Um. Look, absolutely. Um, I, I'd like to see the Australian government do both, actually, to speak up abroad, um, to use its moral authority to speak credibly and, and forcefully about the need to protect press freedom abroad. And it frequently does that, amongst, particularly amongst our neighbours in the Asia-Pacific region. But we also need to be showing that commitment at home. Um, and that means passing the kind of legislation that we've been talking about, starting with a Media Freedom Act. If we can do that, then I think we will have the, we will have both a far more effective 
media operating in Australia to the benefit of all of us, as well as the moral authority to um, speak to our neighbours who are um, who, who are also clamping down on media freedom. Peter Grester, thanks for being on for State. Thanks for having me. And thanks for listening to the program. This edition was recorded at the studios of TRCR and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Forfa State is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for its continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Forfa State on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk about the media, politics and a lot in between. We'll be back with more next week. But in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is ForfaStateAU and you can also find us on threads. I'm Anthony Dockwell. Thanks for listening.